Welcome in to Outkick the Show. I am your fearless leader, Clay Travis. I hope all of you have fantastic Wednesdays, and I appreciate you hanging out with me. Uh, last show, last Outkick the Show of the week, I'll do radio tomorrow, and then my wife is graduating from Vanderbilt Law School on Friday. Very proud of her. We'll have double lawyers in the family. Um, and uh, I will be at her graduation taking the day off uh, to be with her on Friday. Uh, I'll be back with you guys on Monday. Uh, but a lot to dive into today uh, as we uh, look at all the swirling different stories out there. And I want to start with this. Earlier today, it was proven beyond a shadow of a doubt that nine different Joe Biden family members uh, received millions of dollars in payments from for, for foreign interests. This is not disputed at all. Hunter Biden, James Biden, Sarah Biden, Haley Biden, Kathleen Biden, Melissa Biden, nieces, a nephew, a grandchild, all had money wired to them through LLCs, which were designed to disguise where the payments were coming from, from Romania. This comes on top of the money that the Biden crime family received from China and from Ukraine. This is indisputable evidence of the Joe Biden family receiving payment while he was vice president for their connection, Romania, China, Ukraine. This is indisputable. This is evidence of foreign payments that have rolled right in. Now, the precedent that was set by the Department of Justice to try Paul Manafort for not registering for receiving payments from foreign uh, entities would suggest that all nine of these Biden crime family members have violated federal law and should be prosecuted for the monies that they receive. Again, you can look it all up yourself you can easily apply all of the uh, all of the law here, okay? On the same day that all of this information of Joe Biden's family being directly connected to illegal payments that are receiving that are arriving from foreign countries based on Joe Biden being in charge of Romanian interest. On that very same day, and this builds on Ukraine and China payments to Hunter and other members of his family. The Department of Justice, which now acts effectively as the Praetorian Guard for the Biden crime family, announces that they are charging George Santos, a New York House of Representatives member, with 13 different felonies relating to relatively, in the grand scheme of things, certainly compared to the millions of dollars that the Biden crime family has gotten, relatively minor uh, campaign finance violations. Now, I'm not here to defend George Santos. I don't really know George Santos. I don't care about him. Uh, if the members of this Long Island congressional district want to nominate a new Republican and potentially elect someone new here, that is their right in 2024, as it would be the right of any members of any congressional district. My point is... Imagine the audacity of so controlling the Department of Justice that on the day your own family is caught red-handed 
receiving millions of dollars in inappropriate payments, you decide to distract all the propaganda media out there by bringing charges against George Santos. It's so diabolical that I can't help but respect it because it demonstrates the degree to which the Department of Justice has become a propaganda arm of the Democrat Party. It's completely worthless. It's sad. It's disappointing. It's an actual threat to democracy to have the Department of Justice investigating all of your political rivals and covering up for all of your own crimes. Remember, the FBI has had the Hunter Biden laptop, which has evidence of dozens of felonies on it, since December of 2019. Nearly four years. And yet, these George Santos allegations, they happen and we have charges brought almost instantaneously and they still can't get around to doing anything to Hunter. It's pretty wild to think about, honestly, how brazen, audacious, complicit this is when you look at the Department of Justice and how it is applying notions of justice here, which are totally not in any way um, legitimate, all right? That's out there. Also, we had the verdict come down. It came down yesterday while I was doing this show, uh, the E. Jean Carroll civil lawsuit. They changed the uh, statute of limitations to allow this lawsuit to be filed. Her lawyers were paid by Trump adversaries. And honestly, I felt like this was not a very bad verdict. I said on the Clay and Buck show that I thought Trump might well get hit with tens or hundreds of millions of dollars in damages to try to send a message. Instead, this jury, which Trump didn't even bother appearing in front of, actually looked at all the evidence and said Trump did not rape E. Jean Carroll. That is, this did not happen. Now, they said that he sexually assaulted her, but they said that there was no rape, which is what she alleged. And on top of that, as if that were not enough, they then hit him with a defamation charge for millions of dollars, Trump that is, for saying that he didn't know her and that he didn't rape her. So if you agree that he did not, as the jury evidently did, rape uh, this woman, how in the world do you simultaneously then end up saying that he defamed her by saying that he didn't rape her? But it doesn't make any sense at all. It doesn't add up. But that is the verdict that was rendered in New York City. Now imagine it'll be appealed. I don't think there will be any long-term consequences here because I think the reality is people have already baked in most of what they think about Trump. Now, whether this moves anybody, I significantly doubt it. CNN has got a uh, town hall with Trump tonight. We'll see how that plays out. Um, I actually think Trump will do pretty well uh, in the New Hampshire town hall setting on CNN. And I think the number one criticism that will emerge from the Trump interaction with CNN is that he looks way too likable and that that is considered to be unacceptable that they gave him this platform. You're already hearing that argument, especially because he was so likable on the platform. So I suspect that's going to be the number one storyline that comes out of this. But 
uh, just keep in mind what is going on. I think $5 million, even if Trump had to pay it, drop in the bucket compared to the potential exposure here. The story has already basically vanished because they didn't get the E. Jean Carroll people uh, the rape civil uh, conviction like they wanted to, right? The civil verdict. Um, And by a preponderance of the evidence, the jury actually found that Trump did not rape her, which I believe is far more than I expected. $5 million, essentially nothing to Trump. A couple of other things. Uh, Punishment on Bob Huggins has come down. Uh, Let me read that to you. I said yesterday that I did not think that there should be a firing of Bob Huggins in this case. And West Virginia University ends up agreeing with me. Gordon Gee, the president at at West Virginia, says there's going to be a $1 million salary reduction donated to LGBTQ plus center on campus, I'm presuming, or somewhere in West Virginia. Um, That, of course, is a tax-deductible donation. Uh, so uh, not a big deal to, uh, to, to Bob Huggins. Three-game suspension, given the fact that in college basketball, you coach, what, 35, sometimes 40 games, depending on how your season goes. Not a very substantial suspension there. Uh, contract now year-to-year. I mean, Huggins is 69, kind of year-to-year regardless. And he's going to make a donation to Xavier University. That is the punishment that was rendered Uh, by Gordon Gee to West Virginia coach Bob Huggins based on what he said on a radio interview with the Cincinnati area radio show um, that then went viral when he made an insult against Xavier uh, University, uh, both religious and gay in nature. Okay, I I don't think West Virginia has handled this badly. I like the precedent being you don't get fired for what you say, uh, no matter what you say. Uh, uh, I think that's the right precedent to set going forward. If you want to fire people for actions, uh, I think that's eminently reasonable. I think that's how the world should work, right? We judge people based on the things that they do that might be inappropriate, not about the things that they say that might be inappropriate. I think a social media era has created a world where we punish words often very much more than we do actions. So I think this is a reasonable result for West Virginia. I agree with the Mountaineer decision. Georgia. You'll remember earlier this year, I talked about the fact the University of Georgia had not been invited to the White House, despite the fact that they have now won two straight national championships in college football. And I said, what in the world would you attribute that failure to The Biden White House finally got around to inviting Georgia, uh, but they invited him on a day that Georgia couldn't come. uh, And it's a strange sort of standoff here that's going on. I feel like it has to in some way, I think Ainsley Earhart brought this up with me in a Fox News interview. I feel like it has to in some way be connected to Herschel Walker. That's the only thing that I can think. um, That the... Biden White House didn't want to invite Georgia because they didn't want the Georgia football team connection given that he was running for the Senate in Georgia. And now I feel like there has to be some connection to this going forward. Something is not adding up here on why we can't get a visit to the White House for uh, the Georgia football team that has won back-to-back national championships. Georgia said they appreciate the offer, but the timing doesn't work. 
It took two years for the offer to come down. What's going on? It doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Speaking of not making a lot of sense, can we mix this together on the clip when we share it with everyone? Uh, Gavin Newsom, after spending years discussing reparations and putting together a blue ribbon committee and allowing them to talk about reparations for years, they offered uh, up the idea that the state of California should pay $800 billion, $800 billion in reparations to black residents of California. $800 billion in cash. I believe it added up to $1.2 million per black resident based on the metrics that they laid out. Gavin Newsom came out and said, I appreciate these recommendations, but we're not actually going to give any money for for reparations. So he spent years developing this uh, recommendation and then immediately came out and said, oh, by the way, we're not going to give any dollars at all uh, in reparations payments to Californians. Now, I think that's the right result because California never allowed slavery. Uh, California has actually allowed many different people of many different races back when they embraced capitalism to become very wealthy. Um, And this idea of reparations makes no logical sense, right? I lay this out in my new book, uh, which is going to be out in August. I lay it out in the new book because I say, well, hold on, let's break this down. First of all, reparations would mostly need to be paid in the United States by England not by the United States. People say, what do you mean by that? Well, if we presume the first slave arrived in 1619 in the United States, the United States didn't gain independence from Great Britain, from England, until 1783. We'll be right back in a moment, but first, this break. So from 1619 to 1783, the United States was colonies ruled by Great Britain. We did not have actual independence. So England would owe reparations to any former slaves in America from 1619 to 1783. We ended slavery in America in 1863 with the Emancipation Proclamation by Abraham Lincoln. So there was only 80 years of slavery in the United States. And many, many people, including me, are descended from Union soldiers who died fighting in the Civil War. Now, I've got, uh, like many of you, I've got both uh, ancestors who fought on the side of the South and the side of the North. I have a lot of family from Kentucky. Kentucky obviously was a border state. Many people fought in both directions. But my great, great, great grandfather died fighting that we know died fighting for the North in the state of Kentucky. So, given that I have an ancestor who died fighting, in theory, to try to end slavery, shouldn't I get paid for that? Shouldn't there be some significant reparations paid to people who had Union soldiers who died in their family history fighting to end slavery? Just tossing that out there. But also... The slave trade involved Africa. So the slaves were initially captured in Africa and then sold by African leaders. Shouldn't there be reparations paid based on 
African uh, leadership selling slaves there as well? This gets very complicated. Don't even have to consider mixed race, people who came into America who are uh, black after slavery ended. All of this is a huge mess. The idea of reparations is a colossal, colossally stupid idea. And now even Gavin Newsom has said this. And the where, where I want to mix this in is, can we put Gavin Newsom's face on Michael Scott from the office? Can we put Michael Scott's face on, uh, sorry, uh, Gavin Newsom's face on Michael Scott? Do you remember the Scott's Tots episode where Michael Scott comes out and says, hey, I'm going to pay for all you kids' college. And then he has to go back and admit that he doesn't have the money to actually do that. That's what Gavin Newsom is doing to black Californians now. For years, he told them, hey, this reparations thing, we're going to look into it. You deserve money. And then they finally get the recommendation. $800 billion is the cost. And Gavin Newsom comes out and says, actually, there is no money here. And I also have to give credit to Buck Sexton, who describes Gavin Newsom as sounding like evil Keanu Reeves. Perfect description of what Gavin Newsom sounds like on a day-to-day basis. A couple of other stories out here. I was talking about the lack of historical knowledge. It's a big story. Only 13% of American students are testing right now competent in in history, right? Understanding history. And I think this is actually by design. Because if you don't understand history, then you live in an immediate present, which is woefully misunderstood. And kids particularly are guilty of this. I'll give you an example. I was born in 1979, okay? The last year of Gen X. I am the oldest member of Gen X, by the way. Kurt Loder, MTV News. Yes, that was me watching Kurt Loder deliver all the news about Kurt Cobain or Biggie Smalls or uh, the Notorious B.I.G. or Tupac back in the day when he would come on and give you a bit of news. MTV News is shutting down. But when I was born in 1979, as you age, I grew up in the 80s and the 90s, everything that happened before you feels like ancient history. And I'll give you an example. Martin Luther King was killed in 1968. Robert F. Kennedy was killed in 1968. John F. Kennedy was killed in 1963. I was born in 1979, only 11 years after RFK and MLK were assassinated, only 16 years after uh, John F. Kennedy was assassinated. That might as well, in my mind, have been the 1800s, right? When you're a kid and it's 1986 or 87, things that happened 20 years ago seem like they were forever ago. Now I sit here talking to you and it's 2023 and the year 2000 doesn't feel that long ago to me. It was nearly 25 years ago. My point on that is as you age, your conception of history becomes more substantial. You aren't constantly caught in the immediate, which is what kids do, right? Anything that happens before you're born feels like ancient history. That's why history is important. Because you can't contextualize the modern day if you don't have 
a historical precedent in which to contextualize things. And that's why this idea today that America is super racist or there are white supremacists everywhere, it's not only not supported by data, it's also the case that America has never been less racist than it is right now today. And if you doubt that, why would all of these minorities be trying to come into the United States right now risking their life on the southern border to get here? The biggest lie that we are told in America is that America is racist. All of the black and brown people risking their lives to get here right now illegally, I might add, as Title 42 is prepared to collapse, are actually a direct refutation of the idea that America is racist because if America were racist, you wouldn't risk your life and leave your own country to try to get here. The truth of the matter is this. America is the least racist country that has ever existed in the history of the world. But you have to actually study history to understand that that is true. And you have to have some conception of American history and world history in order to understand that too. Which is why I think a failure to understand American history is in many ways a design. Because if you don't understand American history, then you live in a perpetual immediacy with no contextual understanding of how the country is actually doing relative to other countries and relative to history. I'm a history major. I'm a history nerd, admittedly. I love reading history. I love stories. But in particular, without a great historic knowledge, you have no grounding in understanding the narrative of America or the narrative of world history, which is why it is so wildly troubling that right now, when we probably need it more than any time ever before, never has there been less historic knowledge of our kids in schools. We are failing them. And that leads to what I think is this perpetual idea of crisis, which is further exacerbated by social media. This idea that everything that is happening right now is the most important thing that has ever happened in the history of America and that this moment is historically awful to be an American. Nothing could be further from the truth But when you don't have a grounding in basic American or world history, you lack the contextual knowledge to be able to understand what is going on today. And being able to say, hey, guess what? America is better in the 2020s than it was in uh, 1980 or 1990 or 1960 or certainly 1920 or 1880. America has never been better than right now But many people don't understand that. And the biggest threat to America, I believe, is actually internal because people are not smart enough to understand historical legacy and historical relevancy and historical precedent because we live in this kind of convoluted, immediate, everything that is happening right now is the most important. And it's how you end up with an idea like Donald Trump is the modern-day Hitler. Yeah, it's a total joke, but it's a reflection of where we are historically. I just want you to kind of think about that a little bit. Uh, Finally, Tucker Carlson has announced he's bringing his new show to Twitter. I think that's important. 
I, I, I talked about this on Clay and Buck. Um, I want there to be as many platforms that embrace free speech as there can be in this country because I see it tied in with the historic relevancy. I'm talking to you guys right now. You may be watching me on YouTube. You may be watching me on Twitter. You may be watching me on Facebook or Instagram or TikTok. I just got off a radio show, 500 stations nationwide, but many of you may have been listening to me on podcast there. You might be not even watching me right now. You might be listening to me on podcast. There are so many different ways that you can consume this show and all the shows that we do at OutKick. I think they're all incredibly important. But, but, I'm also troubled by the degree to which there is a stifling, and I know many of you feel it, of the First Amendment right now in this country. The marketplace of ideas, and it was embodied quite uh, unfortunately with everything that surrounded COVID, has never been more curtailed, has never been more artificial, has never been more censorious than at any time that we have lived in my life. That is scary because the marketplace of idea, the First Amendment itself, is our most sacred freedom. And if we do not have that, then we do not have the ability to live in a democratic republic. Because if you cannot debate ideas freely, fairly, and openly, then this country's marketplace of ideas will fail and will end up with a uniparty which comes down on anybody who speaks out against the consensus. And if you wonder what that looks like, that's what we just had in COVID. The Republican Party has become the party of free speech. Republicans believe that you should be able to say exactly what you believe. Democrats don't. Democrats now believe that words are violence and that you shouldn't have the right to share your opinion as widely as possible. They believe in silencing their political opponents. That is what they are doing with the Department of Justice. It's why this upcoming election in 2024 is so incredibly important to continuing to sustain and preserve our First Amendment rights. All right. I love all of you. DBAP, unless you need to SBAP, I will be back with you on Monday. Congrats again to my wife, Laura, for graduating from law school. She is going to do it on Friday, 22 years after we initially met in law school. Very cool story. I'm proud of her. I will see you guys on Monday.